It's from the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 21, and it's on page 637 of your Bible. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land, and I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those who called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, Go and show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and elephant of barley. And then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute. Or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. The second reading this morning is 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. It's on 863 in your Bibles. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Heidi. Again, let me add my welcome, uh, especially to those who are part of the extended uh, Leslie entourage. Uh, It's great to have you amongst us this day. Uh, One John that Heidi just read to us would be great to have open in front of you. We uh, continue, if you're new or visiting amongst us, uh, we continue in a series looking at the cross leading up to Christmas. The best preparation we can have is not look at just Jesus' arrival, but why he came. Uh, And so we're looking at the cross not least because it is the heart of the Christian message, but because the cross is so powerful to transform us. So we are looking at the cross, longing to leave different people the more we reflect upon it. But how about I pray that God might do that in us as we look at it now. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your lavish generosity to us. We thank you for the way in which you give us so many blessings. We thank you that we see your love most evidently at the cross and we pray now as we reflect upon it uh, that we would be encouraged by it, assured by it, transformed by it. Uh, Father, by your spirit, speak to each and every one of us now, we pray, uh, that we might grow to be all the more the image of your perfect son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Love is a, a word that's used everywhere. You know, it's, it's used about how we feel about the, the second helping of dessert to the, the deep affection that we feel for our, our, our parents and our partners and our children. You know, love is one of those universally agreed on words as being good. You know, there, there's no one here who's anti-love. We're all kind of pro-love. We all just fit into that faction. And yet, for all of its wonder, it's, it's not universally experienced. Uh, Princess Diana twisted a quote of Mother Teresa's a little and she said something along the lines, the greatest disease is being unloved. We're pro-love and yet we've all experienced points where love has been denied. Uh, More sadly, at points we've denied love to others. We use the word love a lot. But how would you describe your love? How do you describe your love? What are the adjectives that leap into your mind when you think of my love is... Does it go to pop songs? Does it... Wonderful poetry? Is it limitless? Is it limited? Is it... How do you describe your love? When you turn to think of your love, who are the people that you picture? Who leaps into your mind right now? In the daily grind of life... What word captures best the way you go about loving? How would you describe your love? Could your love be described as cross-shaped? You see, this morning as we we continue to survey the wonders of the cross, uh, highlighting different features of the great things that are achieved for us there, uh, we look today to see how the cross demonstrates love. Now, I want us today to leave as people who are intentional lovers in light of what the cross did. Uh, as a church, you may have noticed, we have it written in various places, that, that we have a vision to be living for Jesus, loving like Jesus. What do we mean by that second part of that statement? 
but we turn to the cross to understand it. Uh, at the cross, love is demonstrated. At the cross, we are both loved and shown how to love. Uh, one thing I want you to grasp this morning, that, that cross-shaped love is a selfless giving for good. Cross-shaped love is selfless giving for good. Uh, our reading from 1 John makes clear that it is God who defines love and that at, at the cross is the supreme example of his revealing love as a selfless giving. So John 1 John 4 verse 8 finishes, God is love. Uh, in 4 verse 16, we're told again, God is love. John is declaring that, that love is not just a, another part of God's character. It wasn't it's just not an extra feature, an extra component. It is his essence. God is love. Uh, earlier in 1 John, in, in 1 verse 5, we're told that God is light and that in him there is no darkness. That is... Uh, essential to God is moral perfection. He can do no wrong. It's essential to him. So too, God is love. Love is not optional for God. He has to do it. It's essential. He has no choice but to love. Unlike us, of course. We, we, we can do love, and lots of us do love, but, but we don't have to. We can opt in and out of love. Uh, I saw the other day of a church uh, demographics fairly similar to ours, uh, largely affluent and middle class, uh, but also city-based, and there was a, a large number of homeless people nearby. Uh, I was told the story of, uh, I suppose, characterising this church, uh, that the sermon that morning had just been on the Good Samaritan, you know, the idea of loving anyone who you've the opportunity to love. Uh, the congregation had just heard that and then managed to head to morning tea without offering the slightest hand to the half dozen or so homeless people in the streets and steps outside. Now, I'm not raising that story just to bag out another church, but to kind of go, yeah, it's right, isn't it? Love is an option for us. It is essential for God. And where we see it most clearly, the best revelation of it is there at the cross that is where he is pure, selfless giving. His essence is revealed. 1 John 4 verse 9, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God selflessly gives of his son. He gives sacrificially. It costs God dearly to be loving. It is an extravagance. Uh, in love, God does not content himself with the minimum, but he goes to the maximum to give what was of most value. Uh, in verse 10, he goes further. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, there's God, God's love, this selfless giving, is him taking the initiative to love the unlovely, to go to the undeserving. It wasn't that we loved God. Uh, that reading that, uh, that Nick brought to us from Hosea picked up the offence of that kind of love. Uh, I'm not assuming we're particularly au fait with the book of Hosea. It's one of those obscure Old Testament ones. Uh, in essence, the, the book of Hosea is this extended metaphor for God's love for his people. Um, Hosea, the man, uh, took to himself, at God's instruction, a whoring wife, a woman named Goma. And he loved her and he cared for her. And he fathered her children and cared for them. And yet she went off chasing after others. She took others' money and they had their way with her. She despised Hosea's love, just as God's people had done to him. Yeah, and, and God declared that there would be no mercy on those kind of people, and then after saying that, he took the initiative to show them mercy. 
And God declared that they wouldn't be his people and yet in his own shame took them back. Now, can you imagine the, the shambles of a reputation Hosea had around town? You know, there's that guy who has to pay to be with his own wife. You know, the disgrace. This man who kept being betrayed by his wife but selflessly kept taking her back. And that is the shameful way in which God has loved us. God is essentially love. Yeah, and, that, and that kind of cross-shaped loving is selfless giving. But, but it's not just costly giving. It's giving with a purpose. It's giving for good. Uh, in verse 10, again, the cross is an atoning sacrifice. I mean, that's a fairly jargon-rich expression there. But in, in essence, it's the idea of it's a sacrifice that turns the wrath of God aside. It's a sacrifice that, that takes enemies and brings them over here and doesn't just make us kind of so that we're, we're sitting alone with one another but we're not fighting, but, but unites them, brings them close, makes them at one, at one atonement, that kind of sense. Uh, it's a sacrifice that restores relationships. Your love is not understood just by what it costs to do love, but what it actually achieves. Does it bring good about? You know, it is not loving to keep leaving people in, in their error and their folly, in their sin that damages themselves. You know, it is true that sometimes churches um, fall apart in, uh, in factions and disputes. But in my experience, more often, uh, churches are characterised by a lack of loving conflict and challenge. You know, we, we see people in damaging patterns of sin and we just politely say nothing. Or we witness people um, serve in ways they're not gifted to and we just stay silent. Yeah, and at one level you kind of go, it's what 1 Peter is encouraging, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, you don't have to pick up every fault with somebody. But if love is selfless, it must have objective good in mind. In many cases, our silence is selfish, not selfless. We don't have their good in mind. We fail to do them good. And for what God does when he loves is he selflessly gives for good. Yeah, and it's objectively there for all to see at the cross. Um, earlier in 1 John, 1 John 3 puts it, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Objectively, we can see love. On a set day in history, uh, on a set place, on a hill outside Jerusalem, God the Son was crucified for us, for our good. There is love. And cross-shaped love, when we grasp that, that is going to transform us in two ways. First, the comfort. The comfort that Christ is committed to our good, but secondly, there's a challenge to be ourselves cross-shaped lovers. Let's look at the comfort first. The comfort of Christ's love is that we can be certain that Christ is committed to our good. It's why in 1 John 4, 18, he can talk about how all fear has been driven out. Now, the cross says to you and me that God is entirely for us. Romans 8 picks up the same note and puts it this way. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It goes on to talk about how God works in all things to make us more like Jesus and finishes this way. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You, know, you can look to the objective fact of the cross and that frames all of our subjective experience. That is, we can't know everything God's doing and why exactly he's doing it in the details of every part of our life. 
But we do know what motivated God at the cross. And that shapes how we understand and handle the circumstances of difficulty that come across us each day. We used to live in Ireland. Um, at the moment, if you are even vaguely financially or world aware, you'd realise it's in absolute financial chaos. Uh, a friend emailed Anna this week saying, we would appreciate prayers. Last night I brought the whole mess of our finances to God. We're in a terrible mess and quite frankly we need a miracle, Anna. I'm holding on to a little devotional book on hope which says that even in the really dreadful decisions we made as a couple, God is in charge and will make things, all things well. You know, our friend understands the love of God demonstrated at the cross, that the God who is actually in charge of all these circumstances is still committed to their good and so they can make sense to a degree, of their hardship. They can cope in their hardship because they know God is still committed to them. Uh, I chatted to a mate uh, the other day who lives in Christchurch, uh, a part of Christchurch that was hit heavily by the recent earthquakes. Uh, they struck without warning. Uh, in the middle of the night, everything was shaking. Uh, it was all dark. Uh, his youngest child turned to him and, sa- and said, Daddy, make it stop, you know, as though you know, dads can do everything and, and as though he could you know, stop an earthquake. Um, now, he knows he's not in control. He probably had to break it to her. <laughs> but he did say to me later, was able to say, I don't need to be in control because the God who is in control, he is with us. You know, how does my friend take comfort in the circumstance of life? Because he knows the cross and that God's love has been poured out as a timeless declaration that Christ is committed to the good of his people. Christ is for us. He is committed to our good. Yeah, and that, that transforms the way we approach God, the way we serve him. Uh, at the cross we see our master is our servant. Uh, I read something suggesting the main reason that Christian people don't share the good news they understand of Jesus with, with other people, with their friends, with their neighbours, is not because of a lack of compassion, but, but fear. Uh, there's a fear of people, a, a fear of losing friends, a fear that our reputation might be diminished. Uh, seemed a fair assessment, actually. But looking at the cross, we see that the one we should truly fear is selflessly committed to our good. In a way that our friends and colleagues can never be. And so the cross is just a wonderful antidote to fear. It transforms our service. For our master selflessly serves us. He is committed to our good. Which I suppose brings us to the challenge. How would you describe your love? Are you a cross-shaped lover? It is right in the light of the cross for us to be like God. Uh, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, the evidence that we've been reborn and know God is the way that we love. In verse 11, it's the obligation on anyone who understands the cross to love like that. 4 verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The key word there is ought. You know, the sign of a genuine faith is that we love and pass on the love that we have received. Uh, In verse 12, it's the idea that the invisible God is made visible, he's evident, he's seen through the way that Christian people love. Uh, It goes as far as to say is that that if we love one another in verse 12, we have both God within us and his love made complete in us. Our our cross-shaped love actually completes God's love. Uh, How? Well, it's in the sense that God never intended to love people as an end in itself, but the idea that he would pour his love on you, that you might go on and give that love to someone else. You know, that is how his love is completed. You pass that kind of love on. Now, for us to fail to love after we've seen the cross, 
would in some way prevent God's love reaching its goal. Yeah, but we're not alone in doing it. You know, we talk about this and you kind of go, wow, that feels quite heavy and weighty. You know, we're, we're capable, though, of doing this because God himself is with us. Uh, in verse 15, it isn't just that we've been given a great model to copy. Models alone aren't enough. Uh, you know, you, you could give me a copy of the Mona Lisa. I don't know how you'd sneak it out of the Louvre. But, you know, let, let's say you've brought it to me and say, here you go, here is a great model of an artwork, Mark. Why don't you go to it and make me one? And, well, I can give it a bash. Uh, but I'm not suspecting anyone would queue up for days to come and see my attempted copy. We need more than just seeing the model uh, because unless we have the capability, we can't do it. In verse 15 and 16, what we get is God promising not just to model love but dwell in us that we might rely on him. It doesn't make our love perfect, but it makes an imitation possible. We are to be cross-shaped lovers. Uh, In 4.19, we love because he first loved us. We are to selflessly give of ourselves for the good of others. And my heart was really warmed the other night in our connect group. Someone shared how they'd opened up their house to a couple uh, who'd been given short notice by their landlord. They needed somewhere to stay, they just opened it up. Yeah, that's cross-shaped love being passed on. Uh, My heart was warmed again this morning, uh, arrived here early and there was um, a guy who's sleeping on the porch just uh, under there. Uh, He was in need. Without kind of coordinating, one person uh, put a little envelope with some money in saying have breakfast on church. Uh, Another person uh, made breakfast, some toasts for him. Uh, Another person had a bag of food uh, for them uh, with with sandwiches and fruit and things like that. Warm my heart. There is cross-shaped love just starting out. We know the call of the Christian life is actually to, to live a life of love. In all honesty, though, we still find it hard, don't we? still a struggle. For some of us, it's a lack of desire. I want to say if that's you today, if, you, if you're lacking a desire to, to selflessly give for the good of others, it's understandable because selflessness doesn't come naturally, but they're a way forward. You know, maybe it's worth getting a pen and paper later on uh, and spend time and list in one column all the ways in which God has been generous and selfless to you. And then in the next column, list all the things you have only because of God's lavish generosity. So I think once you write that down, you have it in black and white in front of you, it's a helpful way of re-understanding who you are, who yourself is. You discover so much of yourself is actually his gift. It frees you up to pass it on. And not least, keep looking back at the cross to get that desire. But for others, of us, we, we kind of go, I've got the desire, I want to do it, but you know, how do I go about it? It's the direction that's a problem. You know, modern city life is international living. Uh, there's so many relationships, aren't there? It's almost like there's too many. You know, we, we can't love everyone, uh, but we, we need to be willing to love everyone. And so we just kind of end up getting paralysed into inaction. We, we try and love everyone in general and we love no one in particular. Uh, and so when push comes to shove, we end up just loving the lovely. You know, we commit to the good of people who are just like us people who we think are pretty good. How do we break that? How, how do we become cross-shaped lovers? You know, we need to be honest about the question of whose good are we actually committed to? Is it just the lovely and easy to love? Are they the only people we're committed to doing good for? Are they the only people we selflessly give of? Well, here's a possible solution from uh, a thoughtful man that I've gleaned. Commit to four people 
Commit to loving four people, none of whom are your relatives. They're not given to you by creation. You don't have to. Commit to four people. Commit to to loving them over time. Commit to loving them in lots of ways. Uh, Commit to, to increasing your time with them. Selflessly give to these four. But don't just commit to four people who are lovely. Uh, choose instead one person uh, who's a Christian brother or sister who's kind of weak and high maintenance, if I can put it that way. You know, 1 John 4.20 talks about um, how we can't claim to, to love the unseen God unless we can actually love the Christian brothers and sisters we do see. You know, and the nature of a healthy church is that it isn't made up just of friends and cliques. It actually draws together people who have nothing in common uh, except the good news of Jesus. You know, commit to loving one of those people one of those high-maintenance brothers and sisters who you don't find it actually naturally easy to. Someone who might never go on to do great things for the kingdom, someone who you kind of go, it's not a very strategic investment of my time. One of those people, because that reflects the way God invests in us. Uh, secondly, pick someone who is a, a Christian brother and sister who's strong. You know, someone who, who you feel encouraged by and, and someone who you can encourage, someone you can easily relate to. Pick a Christian friend. You know, the nature of Christian relationships is not that they always have to be painful. They can be mutually encouraging. Pick one of those. Um, thirdly, pick someone, a Christian brother or sister who is young and strong, if I can put it that way. You know, the pattern of Christian life is, is to love and pass on the truth of the gospel, yes, by, by kind of reading bits of Bible to each other, but also just by living a life that other people can see and copy. Live it in such a way that it's open enough and close enough that other people can imitate the way that you are following after Jesus. That's how you pass it on from generation to generation. Um, you may have noticed, if you're a regular, uh, that, that we're hitting a point in our church life where our kids aren't just little kids anymore. Uh, they're getting bigger and bigger. You know, we need to... Uh, as a general point for us all as adults here, actually start loving and passing on the truth then. We need to care for them and treat them as people on their own right. Maybe a little challenge for each of us is each week make sure you have a conversation with a child at church. Um, not just as an attachment to another parent, but chat to a child. They can be short conversations, trust me. Uh, but chat to them. Get to know them. Find a person that you might disciple. It doesn't have to be someone of a different age, just someone in the faith younger than you. So what have you got? Four, three people so far. You're committed to a Christian brother and sister who is weak and high maintenance, one who is strong and easy to get on with, uh, one who is young, who you're going to pass the faith on to, and fourthly, pick someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. Because yeah, that reflects the way that God takes the initiative to love those who didn't love him. You know, find a person who doesn't know the love of Christ and just love them. Now, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing that if everyone in this room so loved another person like Christ that, that by this time next year we doubled in number because so many people have been struck not just by our love but, but struck by the selfless love of the cross that they've seen through your life. There's more to say about cross-shaped love than that. You know, four people's not the limit but it's a starting point, isn't it? You know, there are issues to think through about what it's like to, to be selflessly giving for good at home and work, how, how we do it more formally, like yesterday's Christmas appeal and, and issues of how we, how we love people we don't even get to see. And, you know, but let's just start here. Let's have an answer for who those four people are that we are committed to loving. Let's selflessly give to them in a costly and beneficial way. So how would you describe your love? My hope is it's something like this. God showed his love amongst us this way. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
before we sing, let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you for the way that you have demonstrated your love, poured it out on the cross. We thank you that we know that in all circumstances you are committed to us and committed to our good. And we know that because of the cross. And Father, we pray that you would work in us, reshape us to be people who love like you. Help us to be people who could be characterised by cross-shaped love. We pray this in your son's name and for his glory. Amen.